Right on. Thank you, Kim. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Great. Great. Good. Good. <clears throat> it is um, a privilege to come up here and share every week. Uh, I love just recapping worship. Sometimes my heart lingers in worship a little bit longer <laughs> than the song provides. Uh, thinking, I, mean, I had the, the joy of getting to watch Taryn sing up here solo with Kim, um, which something, and I, I was processing all of it, you know, trying not to cry and all that stuff that I do. Um, processing, I've spent 15 or 10 to 15 years in youth ministry, and uh, I think the reason why I really like working with youth-aged children um, or young adults or youth, I don't know, what do you call them, preteens and teens, is because they, they are establishing their identity and who they are. Um, and there isn't really labels from the outside put on them yet that, that um, divide them from us. And so since they're malleable in their brains and their minds and the way that they're beginning to think and, and uh, we get the opportunity to teach truth to them in different ways and when they grab it, they grab a hold of it, there's this like raw, beautiful, uh, reckless abandonment for um, what they grab a hold of, you know, and so it's like they pursue it with all of their heart, and I'm sure some of you guys are thinking back now to a time when you first um, experienced Jesus. Uh, I'm hoping that it was, you know, <clears throat> that you have experienced Jesus. If you have not experienced Jesus yet, maybe this time is still coming for you, where uh, when you realize who Jesus is, and, and you give your life to him, and, and he uh, abides in you, and you abide in him, and um, life becomes new for you, it's like nothing else matters, and you just want to give everything that you have to him, and uh, last week, um, I, I got into Ephesians chapter 2, and we're in this series on uh, God's masterpiece, being a masterpiece, and really how when we uh, when we come together as a church, we become God's masterpiece. We, us together, each of us bringing our individual pieces, the puzzle you can see out there uh, on the little desk out in the foyer or in the lobby. You can see it's starting to come together. Um, Sam couldn't quite get it all together. It's not his fault. It's the puzzle's fault. Uh, but I kind of, I love the picture that it's creating. Um, and I gave very vague instructions on it for a reason because I wanted it to be unique and I wanted you guys to struggle with it and to look at the different pieces. I actually had somebody mail uh, two pieces to me <laughs> because they haven't been able to come back yet. They mailed them to me because they wanted to be a part of the puzzle. They wanted their pieces to be represented in who we are as Northgate. Even though they couldn't physically be here, they wanted to be a part of it. And I, I look at that harp-shaped puzzle, and there's so many analogies and things that you can tie in there. Yeah, there's pieces that are missing in that puzzle. There's gaps. There's gaps in our church. 
There's pieces missing in our church. There's people missing from our church that we would love to see here. There's, there's people that have been with us that haven't been able to come back that are longing to be here. There's different stages in those pieces. Of, of Some people wrote simply um, a Bible verse or a he lives or uh, a word of encouragement on there. And, there was, uh, and then there's others that did like full diagrams, full pictures, some with color, some without color. Right? It's, it's this multi-colored piece of art. It is a masterpiece, and it is completely unique to who we are. There is no other puzzle in the entire world that looks like that one. And we can say that about Northgate as well. There is no other church in the entire world that looks like our little gathering of people here. <laughs> and it's beautiful. We are beautiful because we are God's masterpiece. If you could turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Now, I've been going at this at a slower pace than I thought I would be going at this because there's so much packed into this little book. Right? It's six chapters, but it is profoundly theological. It has so many implications for uh, us today um, and, and what we are going through. So in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, this is from the NIV. I'm going to start just by reading it, and then I'll get, I'm going to kind of recap last week because this does kind of compound um, on this section, and then we'll go from there. Okay, it says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace <clears throat> that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by my revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Okay, this, this letter that was meant to be read throughout house churches throughout all of Asia Minor and in Turkey, it kind of ends up in Ephesus because this is one of the cities that had gatherings of believers learning how to do life together in Jesus. They're sitting across from each other, new followers of Jesus. And Paul writes encouraging the church to become who they really are, like deeply theologically and profoundly practical, but helping us even 2,000 years later, <clears throat> to know how the church, the way that Jesus designed it. And, and when I say church, I'm not talking about just our little gatherings here on Sunday, but outside of these walls <clears throat> on Mondays and Tuesdays and throughout the week, how we're gathering together every day of the week to be God's family and his people in a church. And I can't think of a book that is more timely, I said this last week as well, more timely and anchoring for what we are experiencing right now in our culture. Paul is dealing with a very hostile culture between Jews and Gentiles. And um, I said this last week, how the, the Jews having this sort of elitism, they, they would make claims about the Gentiles saying that the Gentiles are only, um, they're only good for feeling the fire of hell. Right? And they were actually forbid to help the delivery of a Gentile baby lest they bring another Gentile scum into the earth. Right? It was that sort of hostility that these two different groups had for each other. These Jews, they had the, same, they had the calling back in Genesis chapter 12 that Abram gave them that, that God would bless Abraham through his line. All generations would be blessed through Abraham. 
And the Jews, they took their elite religiosity, their holiness, their rightness, and somehow, rather than using it to champion others and lift other people up and include them, they use it to exclude them. And Paul kind of says, hey, everything's different now. Everything is different. There's, uh, he takes the spiritual elitism of the Jews, and, and he says, now, we're going to we're going to take the Gentiles and we're going to bring them all together and we're going to create something new. And he says, what we do first is he offers us a seat at the table, right? Remember back in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, come take a seat at the table. As a believer in Jesus, you are adopted into the family of God. And that is our first identifier, that we are sons and daughters of the living God. This passage is saying that God's answer to the hatred and the division and the hostility between Jews and Gentiles is to make them into one new humanity. Right? Last week, that was it. One new humanity. And God's answer was not just to change their hearts towards one another. He didn't eradicate their cultures and say, you're no longer Jewish or you're no longer Gentile. But he says, we're going to create something new. It's like we got a new DNA, one new Jesus people, one new humanity, and it's never existed before until Jesus came and changed everything. Jesus healed the hostility between these two groups, and as, as I said last week, the best way to heal the divided groups is through someone they both love. The first encounter of new love in Jesus, they became one new people. It's the same thing for us. When we put our faith and our hope in Christ Jesus, you become a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Accepting Christ, believing in Christ, uh, putting your, your life and your heart into who Christ is, makes you a new, God makes you into a new creation. It's a new humanity through his body on the cross. God takes the Jews and the Gentiles, two opposing groups, anger groups, hateful groups uh, that hated each other, and he makes them one new people. They are now in Christ, and Christ in them. This is the astounding, uh, beautiful mystery that he's going to talk about in chapter 3. If we can get from hostility, from things that divide us, to a place of unity and things that bring us together, we are going to experience that beauty and that transformation called church. This is what church is. It's sitting around the table with our different theologies, our different groups, and our different paths, and our different beliefs, and coming together, one in Jesus, our adoption as sons and daughters first, then everything else we can work out in Christ-likeness. We're adopted first, then we experience Christ-likeness. Adoption turning into looking more and more like Jesus as we go. So Jesus, he kind of, or Paul is kind of making this statement here that when you come into the church, and this is so practical for today, he kind of checks everything else at the door. He doesn't stop you and say, well, who did you vote for? You can come. Nope, you can't. You can, you, nope. You can. You know, what, what is your sexual orientation? Yeah, you, you can come. You can't. You, he doesn't check them at the door if we, it says we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You first come in, belong, know Jesus, receive the, the sonship or the daughtership, the anointing of Jesus as an heir to the throne of God, and then we'll work out everything else as it goes. 
So the next three chapters in Ephesians is talking about how we work this out. How do we actually do this with the absurd call on the church and the outraged thing we, we call church? We pause and we say, okay, come to the table. Let's have a meal together. Let's enjoy a beverage together. And let's talk about this. Talking about adoption in a day when the church is struggling to know what church is supposed to look like, right? Somehow we, we've got caught up in, in trying to guard these certain positions within the church when God never really asked us to protect those things. He can handle it, right? He will work those things out. Jesus is encountering people on the edges and saying, hey, come on in. Come to the table. And I'm not saying that holiness doesn't matter. Holiness is does matter, right? And, and none of us came to Jesus looking like Jesus already, right? All of us, when we first started coming to Jesus, we were far from him. We looked nothing like him. But as we come to Jesus, and as we sit to the table, as we talk with other believers that even here around the room, we become more and more like Jesus. The Christ-likeness works itself out. A pastor friend of mine, he says, the greatest challenge for the church in our day will be to love those that value and believe what we do not. Right? The greatest challenge for the church in our day will be to love those that value and believe what we do not. Paul says, when I think of this, when I think of what Jesus did on the cross through his body and his special responsibility of extending his grace, extending the grace of God, this mysterious plan that God gave me is Paul. This was God's plan. And he says in verse 6, right, both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news of Jesus shared equally in the inheritance of God. Both children are part of the same body and both enjoy the same promises of blessings because they belong to Jesus by God's grace and power. We need both. We need God's grace and we need God's power. And Paul says, he gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available in Christ. Right? Paul does some self-reflection and he looks inwardly and he, and he says, I was the worst of these. I was the worst of the sinners. Yet for some reason, God is calling me I'm going to keep talking about this because in, in chapter 2, he delivers it, and then he keeps talking about it. Right? In verse 10, he moves to this stunning place where he, he says, this is the purpose of all this. Right? This is what happens when you're adopted into the family of Christ. You're given the grace and the power of Christ. Now this is why. He says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Now in verse 10, he delivers with much more powerful language here his intent. Okay, sorry, I didn't put it up there. His intent in verse 10, 
Okay? It says his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. This is his purpose. Okay? The purpose of, of what Paul is doing and what, what God has called Paul to do, what Jesus is doing, is that through the church, through us, those who believe in Jesus and call each other's brothers and sisters, that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display the wisdom of God. This word right here, um, the one that says the manifold wisdom of God. There's a few different uh, translations of this. One of them is the multifaceted view of God, right? All these different angles and things that, that God can do. The, the other one is a multicolored picture of God. It's a lot of big language in here in this section. God's purpose says that the church, in a day where there's so much confusion about the church, this thing is God's actually using the church to be a display of God's wisdom, Paul only uses it here one time in all of his writings. And I think it's because it's such a powerful word to describe what this looks like. Jews and Gentiles, one in Christ, a new humanity. Okay? Why? Why would God do this? To put on display the multicolored wisdom of God, not just the multifaceted view of God, but it's so that the church can become the divine theater which God acts out through the church's wisdom. One of the theologians that I was reading described it in this way. If you think about it this way, if we as the church become the divine theater by which God acts out through the church his wisdom, what does that make us look like? How does that change our purpose in the way that we interact with each other? That last part of verse 10 says, to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. I'm going to get into um, some deeper theology. Stuff that is fun for me to talk about. Like, I love talking about this stuff. Uh, but it goes deeper than surface-level Christianity and what we might typically preach on a Sunday morning. I'm going to start talking about the unseen realm. And to me, the unseen realm is uh, just as real as the seen realm, but it carries a nostalgia or a um, supernatural, uh, a mystery to it that some of us never quite tap into. So in this day, in the city of Ephesus, Artemis, okay, the one seen on the left here, uh, was the goddess of... Uh, hunting and fertility and you can see her and she was kind of a big deal goddess right she was known and worshiped all over the world she lived in this temple that you see called the artemisia this is a depiction of it right what it might might have looked like back then it was grandiose and um, maybe you've heard of it because it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world right it was so stunning this temple that um let me see, I'm, I'm trying to read through my notes here. She was the god of the hunt, 
So if you had any, cra- if you had a, or she had a bow and an arrow, right? And the way that I heard someone describe it for us that don't know Greek mythology is that she's kind of like Katniss Everdeen, okay? She rides around on a horse and shoots things. So if you were a hunter, you would pray to Artemis because you couldn't actually kill on the hunt unless you had the favor of Artemis, the god of the hunt, right? They believed that if she didn't want your baby to live, right? She was shooting the arrow through a baby at birth, so they believed that there was faith, and there was destiny, and there was fertility in their childbearing, and it all rested in the hands of the goddess of Artemis. Millions of worshipers would gather to come and worship her once a year, and they had this seven-day celebration that would actually last a month, where a million worshipers would come into the city of Ephesus, and they would worship Artemis. And so when I'm, I'm realizing the culture behind all of this, I picture Paul in his prison cell, and he can hear people outside of his cell, right, if we're getting into his shoes, Artemis, Artemis, great goddess of Artemis, bless my baby, bless my hunt, may I be plentiful, right? Imagine being young Timothy, right, coming into this city where there's millions of worshipers who are following Artemis, and they're praying to Artemis in her temple, There was actually a prayer that I found. Uh, It says, O great Artemis of the Ephesians, help display your power upon this young man who has died, for all the Ephesians know, both men and women, that all things are governed by you and that the great power has come to us through you. Okay? Artemis was worshipped. And even though she was known as the goddess of the hunt, the thing that made her even more power or more recognizable was her recognition for power. They would go to her for power, right? That was the word for Artemis was power. And history tells us all kinds of things about her. Um, She had the ability to help her worshipers uh, from these prayers. She held the power over destiny and life and fertility. And another government council wrote, this great goddess Artemis, leader of our city, honored not only in her homeland but in cities throughout the world because of her divine nature. Do you guys hear the language here? It's divine. Artemis had this supernatural power to these people. So she's worshipped around the world. She's she's got all the power. And specifically, she was known as the goddess of the demons. They believed that the air that surrounds us, that's the heavenly realms. Okay? And it was filled with demons. Demons. This was one of the most demonic places in the known world. They didn't believe in heaven like we believe in heaven, but they would believe in something called these heavenly realms where the angels and the demons existed. And in Ephesus, it was said that the demons filled the air so profoundly that you couldn't stick a pin between them. Imagine having the gift to be able to see into the unseen realm and walking into the city and seeing a a spiritual darkness of demons, a cloud of demons that circled the city. She was the most powerful being on the planet, and to the people, she controlled these demons. And your worship to her, your offerings to her, are, are what would sustain you and protect your life. I think reading it with that intentionality makes this letter so much more purposeful. I mean, 
if 2,000 years from now we found an email that someone wrote in, in this room to somebody else in this room, I wonder what kinds of things they would pull out of it. They would pull out words probably like Brethren Brewing Company or uh, Nightingale Coffee, San Francisco 49ers. I mean, I'm, I'm not supporting one way or the other, but that's the kind of thing that you would probably find in a letter, things that distinguish our culture. To this culture, things that distinguish the Ephesians was the spiritual darkness and the demons that surrounded the, the air. So reading back in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, it says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him as his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked not only in the present age but also in the one to come you are sitting in a house church and you are hearing this message when you know surrounding you everywhere surrounding you are these demonic presences these demonic presence and paul is exclaiming to them jesus is the king of the air You've heard that it was said that, that Satan is the prince of the air and Artemis is the queen of the air, but I'm telling you, they have no power in comparison to Jesus. Jesus gives us grace and power. Jesus is over every demon in our city in the same way that he was over every demon in their city. And not only that, if that's not good news enough, Paul takes it further and says, Jesus is the king of the air, and we're still, and he's still the king of the air 2,000 years later. You want to see what the temple looks like today? It looks like this. Oh, great power of Artemis. Where do you stand now? Sorry, I'm getting ready for a fight. <laughs> because that's what he gives us. He gives us the power and the courage and the ability to stand in the presence of demons and say, no way, not in my house. We are the divine theater meant to act out the wisdom of God. Jesus seated in the heavenly realm. He's over every principality, over every demon, every unseen ruler. You're seated in Christ because you're in Christ and he's in you, which means you're seated with him at the table of God. We've got to tap into the power. Try to understand this for a moment. Somehow, inside and outside of time, we're in Christ to actually rule over all of the demonic realm. The Ephesians reading this would have wept. Paul is saying when church acts like the church, actually, things in the heavenlies shift. 
This is the mystery of God. And as much as I love worship, I love powerful worship. I love it when Kim's up here. I love it when my daughter is up here expressing her heart. It's not that God's not here during worship, but that's not what he was saying was the mystery of God. I love it when we gathered together in small groups, and if we could develop a culture of like little small group gatherings, I love that. There's power in that, but that, he's saying that's not what he's calling the mystery of God. He's saying the mystery of God is when I pull someone from over here, someone from over here, with two completely different, differing theologies, differing paths, differing political spectrums, different, different sexual orientations, different uh, agendas, different, you know, all these different secondary things, and come together, and we say, we submit to the one true king, Jesus. And when we do that, when we act like the church, the heavenly realms submit and wonder and awe. Because there's no other way that some of us would, would join together if it weren't for Jesus. There's no way. There's too many radical positions in today's culture that divide us. There's 40,000 different denominations, which actually means divided nation. There's 40,000 different denominations that, that most of them come, came to, to happen because of division, not vision. And he says, take all of those secondary things and put them aside so that you can come together to believe in Jesus, to worship Jesus, to make sure that Jesus becomes famous. Honestly, you guys, that's why I love being here at this church. I know a lot of you on a deeper level, and I know that we're not all the same. In fact, we shouldn't be all the same. If, if churches all looked the same or there wasn't the ability to oppose certain, op, uh, certain presentations or, or even this message... I wouldn't want any part to do with it. Please, challenge me. Iron sharpens iron. We are the church. We're meant to act like the church. It says they will know that we are Christians by our love. And when we love each other despite our own personal agendas, that's when God is powerful, the most powerful. For some of us, I, I want to go into a time of prayer and just spend like, I don't know, five, five minutes in prayer, a quick, quick time of prayer. Some of us need to be called out on the comfortability that we've taken in, in just sitting back and enjoying church. Uh, and I know our church in particular is, is really good at being hands-on, active. We do a lot of things for the community despite how many people we might have attending this church. We, I see a lot of good, but I think I, there's still some, and maybe this is more for people listening online if they listen to it, but if you are in this room too where maybe you need to be called out and say, how can we act more profoundly as the church? If that's you... In fact, if you just want to renew that, then join me in prayer because I want to pray for that. I want that too. Father God,
We see Paul persecuted for his beliefs in you, thrown into prison, writing, worshiping, encouraging the church in Ephesus to stand together in the face of trial, in the face of division, in the face of hostility. And you call us to come together through Paul's words. Jews and Gentiles, those on the left, those on the right, those in the deep and the dark, those who are wandering, those of us who feel like we know everything we need to know, we have an informed opinion on every matter within the Bible. Some of us need to be humbled, some of us need to be encouraged. Some of us are just starting our walk, and some of us have been walking this road for a long time. Your call to us has been to gather together in the name of Jesus, in your name, Jesus. To act as one. One faith, one baptism. You've called us into a new humanity. A new humanity that has a new DNA that has been joined together and God, I pray that this morning for those of us who are stirred up by this kind of message to be new, to be a new creation, to, to receive this grace and power offered through Jesus, I pray that this morning would be one of commitment to walk powerfully in the name of Jesus with grace and authority. God, we know that our culture is going towards a, a, a time of persecution and trial. We're heading towards division and disunity. I pray that we would be against the grain and that we would come together despite our differences. And when we sing these songs of worship to you, our whole hearts would be poured out before you in praise. God, you are the king of the air. God, I pray that we would walk with the authority that when we experience or feel the demonic presence around us or the oppression of, of the people around us, the oppression of government or the oppression of our jobs or the oppression of our groups, God, that we would stand in the power and grace of Christ and that you would rule supreme over the heavenly realms. God, we turn our hearts back to you in these last couple songs of worship, may you be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.